Hello, you're listening to The Consequential Podcast. I'm Dave Convery. With me today, only Roger Hart. Say hello, Roger. <laughs> Lucy's not here because she's on a uh, cruise having ca- pancakes made for her by robots. Yes, she has gone on a robot pancake cruise. Uh, I think there's probably some other stuff involved, maybe in Italy. Um, yes, and there was something about a plastic surgeon, which makes me think she might be like the subplot in a 90s straight-to-video thriller. That's always been possible. Always been a concern of mine, frankly. Mm. Um, now, apparently, the, the Q, they had a Q&A, one of the entertainments on their boat was a Q&A with a plastic surgeon. I'm just, I'm just imagining like a doddery, middle-aged, rich person version of a Reddit Ask Me Anything. Oh, God. Can yeah. you imagine? Yeah. Let's just, just hone in on that for a moment. Let's just leave that hanging in the air. It's a bad time. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about Darwin Cook because sadly Darwin Cook died at the weekend and he's long been a favourite of mine um, and you also have mm. read his books. I have indeed and I'm sad about this thing because he does books good. Yeah, I got to the end of one of the Parker books that I reread for this. It was a big Parker will return in 2016 at the end of it. Felt sad, but anyway, we'll talk about nice things up to a point, and then we'll get maudlin about Darwin Cook. Do you do you need a hug? No, that's that's good because no, as discussed, I worry that you electric have clangers, a high degree of electricity stored in your body, um, particularly around your wool-clad crotch, and I don't want you to disperse this anywhere near me. I will endeavour not to electrocute you with my nutsack. Thank you. Thank you. That's really the least you can do. Tell us what you've been reading. Um, not much. I've been um, a little preoccupied of late, so I've really only read a couple of things. I looped back through the Parker books, um, obviously because Darwin Cook, uh, and then I've really only read the uh, a couple of a couple of trades. Well, uh, well, not trade. They don't really count as trade collections, do they? If they're OGNs, whatever. Anyway. Is it a paperback of about 120 pages? Yeah, yeah. Call it a trade. Mm. But neither of them were originally serialised, and I don't know if that matters. So um, Only to people more pedantic than us, which is... I mean, they exist, but who gives a fuck, people. really, yeah. what they think? Yeah. So I read um, Tilly Walden's The End of Summer, and um, Jason McNamara, and... Greg Hinkle, or is it Fred Hinkle, something Hinkle? The Hinkley chap. I don't know. You know that big document we have where I ask you to put the names of everyone on yeah, so did, we don't do this? Did you I did, not you did not. You did not fill it I out. I usually do. Well, you haven't. So here we are. Now it's just there. It's another thing that's just hanging in the air between us. I'm fairly sure it's Greg Hinkle. Welcome um, to the Recriminations cast. They're always the Recriminations cast. Tell us about it. Tell so, us about The Rattler. The Rattler is... Um, what, is what, what is The Rattler? It was put into my hands by Ben at FP. Uh, support your local comic book store, folks. And he said it was one of the more interesting things they'd had out um, that week. And I guess maybe that means I went in on a slightly indifferent week. I, I It's not bad, but I don't know if I like... When I, on the last podcast, the webcomics one, when I read Quicksilver, I, I was talking about the fact that I couldn't tell whether I thought it was sloppily written or really well written in a voice I hated. And this had a similar problem. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a crime piece, semi, semi-based on a... It's not based on a true story, it's extrapolated out from an experience the author had. So the backstory of the protagonist is... Um, a very thin adaptation of a thing that happened to the author, and then it's extruded out to horrifying consequence, which, which is kind of cool. But that leads the whole thing this leads the whole thing this air of a kind of autobiographic unkilled darling that just makes it slightly uncomfortable. I, I didn't know about that when I read it, and I, it was, it, there's a coda at the end, a little mini essay about this thing that happened. Like, oh, that makes sense. You kind of never got never got over that, did you? And why would you? It's horrible. But I, there's there's this. This pervasive air through it of Unkilled Darling that just unsettles me a bit. 
I should probably explain what it is, shouldn't I? Yes, I was wondering, but you were on a roll. Hmm. So The Rattler is about um, a guy called Stephen Thorne, who's a victim's rights advocate, and not a particularly nice man, who um, became, became this after a traumatic experience where his fiancée was abducted um, ten years in the, uh, back into the backstory of the book. And he basically crusades to fuck over criminals, just, just generally nasty, retributive justice bollocks, just kind of unpleasant. We see a couple of vignettes of television interviews with him where he blames liberals for everything. It's the kind of, you know, you know where we're going here, right? Like it's, sort of, he's got a Frank Miller view of the world. Mm, he's a reactionary dickhead. A reactionary dickhead that we're supposed to feel sorry for because he's had horrible things happen to him. And, you know, he's the protagonist, so you get a certain amount of stuff by default there. He's also, he's um, not merely a campaigner, but runs a media organization, which is quite keen to keep, so it's got a sort of corporate heft behind it. Um, he's not a dick about that, he's not in it for the money, he's in it for his cause, but they're clearly like mining his brand for their commercial goals. So you've got, shall we say, a problematic string of protagonists, a sort of unsympathetic, slightly bastardous cabal. And... Stephen starts to go proper off the rails. I mean, I don't know how we feel about spoilers here. Shall I? I'll have to give some, but yeah, there's, no, th- there's no way of talking about it without some. I think for for an independent book where there's, you know, it, it's more likely people will go out mm. and get it. It's been on. It's been on. Kick, I think it was Kickstarted or something to do with the Kickstarted. So I don't think it's brand new to the world. I think it has been out in some form for a while. I never did it, but um, basically a. Um, Convicted serial rapist. He, he comes home one evening to find a convicted serial rapist he campaigned against sat in his apartment threatening to kill him. And um, in the ensuing tussle, he kills the guy. And as he's dying, he speaks with the voice of the missing abducted fiance and starts telling him things and begging for help. And the whole thing then enters this mad liminal space where you're not really sure if he's hallucinating or if this is really happening. The... Um, the voice of the abducted fiancé, who can only speak in the dying moments as he kills people, which um, happens enough for them to have a chat, um, seems to have access to information that he possibly couldn't if he didn't know what was going on. It, it seems like there might be something supernatural happening here, or it could be some very complex hallucination. Like His organisation has databases of stuff to do with with criminals and criminal activity, so he could be synthesizing this stuff from his subconscious and whatever. There's some interesting twist stuff, but the thing that happens quite early on is effectively that he just goes proper fucking off the rails trying to find his 10-year kidnapped former fiancé and um, starts hunting people down, beating the living shit out of them and kills a couple of them, and therefore is able to have this kind of beyond-the-grave or liminal near-death chit-chat experience. So you've got that, you've got that weird vicissitude of superpolar idea of justice goes off the rails, crib from Greek tragedy type shit. Um, and some really weird, unpleasant, double bluffy twist stuff that happens, and a hell of a lot of gore. It's, uh, it's got this pencil slightly cartoony style, very, very spare on the colour, uh, unless it's red, which you get the big visceral blood thing. Kind of like a less chiaroscuro Sin City. Um, uh, it looks kind of cool some of the stylized character renditions are cool it, it's just it's incredibly pacey, it clips along like a really really taut 90 minute thriller but a really really taut kind of channel 5 90 minute thriller mm. it just doesn't quite land for me it it goes straight to 11 and stays there, I guess, and it's a little bit too knowingly cinematic. So there's a sequence where he um, goes to track down a previous offender, he's monstered a bit, and finds a girl chained up in the basement, who then turns out not to be chained up, turns out to be the partner of the person he's looking for, beats him unconscious, and they end up putting him in the stocks with the intention of making a snuff movie. The gimp sleeping and all of that jazz, it's, yeah. it goes a bit... It goes a bit like that, but in a fairly gratuitous and unpleasant way. Like, they end up cutting some of his fingers off, and then he goes fucking ballistic at them with an electric bread knife. And Yeah, it's... Uh... Electric bread knife? Is this set in the 80s? No, it's just nasty. Because 
I mean, that's the sticking point for me. The innovations catalogue has to be around for anyone to have an electric bread knife. They could have bought it in the 80s. It's quite an old house. I'll allow it. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad that's the thing we're sticking on here, not the... Oh, I haven't read it, but that, very, that it's, seems it's like an anachronism. Very heavy-handed, grotesque violence, which in places does play out with, like, it... I can't fault the art, but it spends too long at 11 in a slightly adolescent way, I guess. Just trying a bit too hard. The plot twists feel like they're trying a bit too hard. The whole thing does just have this air of unkilled darling. But I quite like the emotional complication it forces the reader through, in that this guy is just... Oh, what was that? Was it Natural Born Killers, the movie where you kind of... Yes. Yeah. It's, it's horrendous, but you find yourself problematically sympathising because it manipulates the protagonist expectation. Yeah, I think... The, I mean, there's a fair few films that... Yeah, that, that's, that's that, it's the one it made me think of. It, it's, it does that quite well, but that's a bit played out. And, and then there's the twist stuff, and... Uh, and there's some more stuff that could have been done with the twist stuff. And I, I just... I wanted to like it. I like problematic protagonists. I like slightly smug postmodern things, but it it just felt like a bit of a like a brave, like massive marks for effort misfire. Looks pretty good though. Just fair. Okay. I don't know. I, I would I would I recommend it? Well, it's it's on image. It's a relatively inexpensive mistake. So it's in the seven quid for a volume one range. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Worth a sniff, but. Yeah. Maybe with, don't with provisors. Don't don't huff too hard. Tilly Walden then. <sighs> end of summer. Tilly Walden. Quite different, I would say. Oh yes. Now, if you listen to the um, probable interview, we, we briefly interviewed Tilly Walden. She we seemed did. absolutely lovely. Mm. She did not seem at all upset by the fact that I was so hungover I could barely speak. No. If she noticed the fumes coming off you she didn't flinch too hard or yeah, anything yeah, yeah. She, well, just a she, class act all the way yeah, yeah. and she done good comics again or previously yes this is, this is actually earlier than um, yeah. th- this one so she's done other bits and odds and ends here and there I think little sort of diary type things but this is her first full length mm. and it's weird so in so this is the end of summer yeah the end of summer in I Love This Part which was her one last year yeah uh, that's this sort of touching coming of agey thing about these children who in their perception are kind of giants against their landscape they lean slumped against buildings they loom large against hills it's got this wonderful sort of visual codification of childhood experience and the world seeming alternately big and small uh, and I think people particularly teens being odd against landscape is clearly a thing that she's got a thing for because this does a lot of it so the end of summer is set in kind of a palace I guess it's a sort of fantastical piece there's a family noble family a royalty I think quite large servants and the likes but not masses of people a noble household who are shuttering themselves away in a giant sprawling palace for winter which it emerges will last for three years and Lars, the protagonist, is the sickly child, uh, boy twin of two boy-girl twins, who is convinced that he'll be dead by the end of uh, end of the winter. Something wrong with his heart. He's sickly. He uh, rides around on a giant cat so as not to overexert himself. It's, you can do that. It, it's somewhat fantastical. Oh shit! Well, only if you've got a heart condition. Like the NHS isn't profligate. I probably don't, but I can give you one. With your electric nutsack. <laughs> I was going to suggest a, a hammer and a rusty nail, but... Uh... That's that's actually a murder. <laughs> that's, that's what that Not is. Not if they get here in time. Oh, why am I out of wine? So he rides his giant cat. Yeah. For health reasons. Yeah. His, um, his giant cat for health reasons. Assistance animal. Mm-hmm. Um around this huge, huge sprawling palace that is, is kind of characterful and is definitely a kind of... I don't want to do the whole wanky, the place is as much a character, it's not, but it is tremendously imposing, it creates a, a solid impression. And it's got those little 
It, in I Love This Part, she was more expansive with colour and wash. This is a lot more cramped. Not itchy and fidgety, just a lot sort of smaller and tighter pencil, um, sort of ink pieces. It's, it's smaller panels. It occasionally breaks out into something expansive and is quite startling when it does, but it, it's a lot more cramped. Which fits the idea of this wintry claustrophobia. So the family has this three-year three year winter and they're concerned they'll go crazy and some of them do. And it's basically, it, it's what happens to them over the time. Because they have at once this huge palace to wander around in, but not many people to talk to, not much to do. They are royalty, but it's not really clear what's happening to the people outside as the snow drifts in. It, it, there, there are a lot of sort of open questions and strangeness. There's a, they have an, there's a swimming pool that's just big enough to sail a little boat on, and sort of things that are like a, a, a mad giant marble soft play center, you know, kind of pipes to climb in and things to do. A lot of the spaces feel like a, an architecturally grandiloquent take on a childhood fantasy. Right. You've got sort of giant cathedral-esque archways and things, but with throw cushions everywhere. And yeah, the sort of pipes to hide in and swimming pool to play in. And then sort of vaulted ceilings and regal spaces. It's strange and sprawling. It's sort of a little bit gormenghasty, maybe, but that's perhaps too lazy a touchstone. Well, I mean, I've been thinking gormenghast when you've been talking about mm -hmm. it, because it's... People slowly going mad, rattling mm. around a big old house, and Gormenghast is of a mm. ludicrous scale. But it's certainly where my mind went when you started mm. describing but it. But it. it's it's the Gormenghast you'd envisage as a late teenager remembering childhood. And, you know, Lars, Lars, when he gets shuttered away for winter, is eleven and will emerge at fourteen. So it, it sort of sort of plays to that. Ah, uh, and things happen. Basically, some of them go nuts. So pair. Uh, one, one of the, the, the middle kids the one with a difficult name mm. goes proper bugfuck um, over some sort of fixations and petty jealousies and Maja, Maya um, the twin sister starts going a little bit a little bit weird but kind of acts out against some of the strictures of their society and is shuttered away for it she commits the grotesque transition, uh, transgression of cutting her hair and is shuttered away until it grows back. So there's this, through it all is this suppressed threat of something. There's the winter environment outside that creates some pressure and then there's the pressure they bring in with them, the kind of social strictures and structures that are barely spoken of but then protrude in places. And then Nicholas, the eldest son and heir, is sort of maybe finding love with one of the servant boys or not. It's kind of ambiguous, but there's an active affection there that steps on Pear's toes and leads to him going nuts and, well, killing the giant cat. Uh, it's, it's got a sort of psychiatric degradation isolation pressure thing that it articulates beautifully slowly and slightly in these wonderful little panels. It's not a horror comic but it has a lot of the feel and atmosphere of one, a lot of intertwined pace, and it reaches a fairly terrifying but also quite interestingly abstracted crescendo. And it expands and contracts with, with little bit. So she intersperses images of things from Lars's sort of fantasy or recollection with the various panels. In, and it kind of gets a little bit reality fantasy hazy in places. So there are some very architecturally detailed, almost draftsman-like bits interspersed with pictures of machinery from a book he's reading or things that he half recollects as he drifts out of consciousness because he's having a seizure. So it's, it's really quite intricately layered. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's... Um, it, it, it's monochrome. It's kind of shady. There are bits of um, bits of ink wash, and then bits of extraordinarily intricate detail, and then sort of in the tragic aftermath, it expands out to landscape with light and shade effects. It. I tell you what, it's just disgustingly talented, and yeah. this is more of that. Yeah, it's my favorite thing I've read for a while. She's she's what now? She's sort of twenty one, twenty two, early twenties of some kind. Not, um, yeah, she, she's um, done really quite a lot. Yeah, it's, it's, she's got a new book out this year, hasn't she? 
She's got one that's just come out. The new one's called uh, A City Inside. And uh, I don't really know what it's about yet, but uh, the description is... Shifting between the everyday and the surreal, A City Inside recounts one woman's life from childhood home to first love that she will never forget, to the creation of the idea of herself that she can grow old with and the home that she can grow old in. Which sounds like an extrapolation of what she's done so far. I'm going to go out on a limb and say people in architecture as weird space might be a feature. I think there's a possibility. I think there is. No, this is... It's just wonderful. It's a wonderful... Look at that. Some more great audio content for you folks at home. Sorry, but it's it's one of the the panels pages in the middle of the book where a kind of with a movement in panel size as you you start on a darkened out archway and the light kind of follows us through. We see silhouettes, we see movement, kind of things barely half glimpsed and unveiled. Um, just wonderfully moody and atmospheric for some fairly simple ink strokes and a giant cat that you can ride for health reasons. Which is all I've ever wanted, it turns out. Yeah, yeah, you look proper delighted. Yeah, let's let's uh, just stop here. I'm off to the zoo. You're... I'm going to stop and get a saddle on the way, obviously. Yeah, yeah obviously. You're sort of like, uh, I don't know, a sort of... <sighs> wheezy, dyspeptic He-Man. I'll take it. Yeah, I'll, I'll have that. I think I've got a better haircut, I'll be honest. That's not hard, is it? It's not hard, no. I mean, he wasn't stylish. No. But he did have a flared base. So I've been reading. Yes. Uh, I, I read um, Welcome Back uh, by Christopher Sabella, Jonathan Sawyer, and Claire Rowe. It's also We Come Back, the Alice in parentheses and uh, in a different colour. Oh, you keep fucking reading these, don't you? I the like weird pun title, ways. wanky comics. I just, I read it because I... End of Offence, what was the other one? Um, there's another one you read. This is very different to Roman Muradov. Yeah, but you read a thing that also had a... There was End of Offence and then there was... Um, in a Sense, Lost in a sense, and Found. Found. Is that also Roman Muradov? That is also Roman Muradov. Is that his thing? That's his thing. I like it, but I feel dirty for liking it. He got in touch to apologise and then said that his new one would have a pun title as well, which was nice, because before it's released I can have a real run-up at it, figuring out what the fuck it is. It's like he's taken pity on me, this idiot child, who doesn't understand that there are puns in these titles, and and he's given me enough advance warning that I can figure it out, which I, I deeply appreciated. I feel so bad for liking it. The puns? Yeah. It's fine. They're great. I mean... Given that they are bizarrely abstract comics based mm. on woodcut, early modernism, complete abstraction, the odd pun here and there to lighten the mood is absolutely fucking fine by me. The combination seems very us. Mm. Yeah, true. Could only really be better if it was, you know, early modernism, woodcut and dick jokes. Someone must have done that. Yes. Yeah, Maybe that's his next comic. Maybe. Maybe his next one's about art criticism, I believe, so. A lot of dicks in art. True enough. Brian Sewell, for instance. Too soon? No, not really. Alright. No. Anyway, we'll come back. Welcome back. Is a... um, I didn't like it. So Tell us why you didn't like it, Dave. No, I was just taking a moment. I do understand how this works. I've done it before. Um, So it's about... An ongoing war with serially reincarnating warriors on both sides of a very ill-defined conflict. Sounds alright. But it never really explains anything. It doesn't really explain what they're fighting for or why, and that is part of it. Like, they're, they're not... They don't really know what they're fighting for anymore, other than they just re- keep resurrecting and doing this. And... Um, Honestly, there needed to be a bit more. The central mystery of what the fuck is this happening for is not compelling enough. It could be. I can see it. But it, but it's not. Mm. Um, and the characters... So, so the, either the central mystery needs to be really strong, mm. or the characters need to be really strong. And, and they're not. There's, there's, the, there's the sort of 
the one who's awakened more recently, who is the naive, who's just suddenly awoken to being this sort of mystical warrior who's resurrected throughout time. And there's the one who's been trained since she was five and is the sort of true believer. And would you fucking believe it? They switch places at one point. <gasps> yeah, I know. Um, I just... I. It feels like there's a hell of a lot there and someone pitched something based on an extremely high concept, not enough of which was front-loaded to to um, genuinely make the opening of the story compelling, mm. um, which is frustrating because I think it's probably going to be good if it continues. Oh, it's ongoing? It's, it's an ongoing series on Image at the moment. So what did you, did you get the first trade or a couple of issues? Or? I got the first trade, um, which is four issues, which switches artists halfway through issue two. Difficult. From page to page, for no artistic reason, just I think they needed to get the book finished, and it Again, there are ways because they draw everything completely differently. Like there the are ways of landing that. Don't look the same they don't right. they're hard like if they weren't colour coded it would be impossible to say that these were the same people and oh yes they're colour coded that's a problem that is a problem um, I mean there's reasons for that because they need to flash back continually to their other existences the stuff going on there it would make Wait a, a reasonable pilot episode just elaborate Power Rangers fanfic heavily colour coded multiple iterations throughout time, inexplicable ongoing conflict, very little character work. Christ, you know, it could be. The author's friends with Chris Sims, he could easily be. Is, is this just a joke about Power Rangers that has got tragically out of hand? Like, I don't know, a pub blag or something? I don't really know very much about Power Rangers, um, because I am in my mid-thirties. That's not an excuse. The entirety of horrifying crawl over your own garbage pile pop culture exists to service pricks like us we're, yeah, we're middle class white male nerds when I was old enough that I might have conceivably cared about Power Rangers it was on the nascent Sky TV oh I wasn't allowed to watch it I didn't want to either but I was explicitly told I wasn't allowed to which lent it a guilty free song then I watched an episode and was like what the fuck I cannot confirm or deny that it's based around Power Rangers um, what I would say, though, is if you have to read one thing by Christopher Sabella, you should read uh, his kickstarted book, I Live in a Clown Motel, A Journey <laughs> to the Dark Heart of America. Where um, That sounds amazing. He went to live in a clown motel for 30 days and Why? wrote about it. Because if you find out there's a clown motel next to a graveyard... <laughs> You're sort of duty-bound to go and live there. Um, yep. It also had the best breakdown of Kickstarter costs ever. Um, which, one of which was explaining that he was going to need to tip over the odds because he wasn't particularly tidy. He was living there for 30 days. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't think the Clown Motel are used to people being there more than one night. <laughs> it, was, it was glorious. And... Um, more interesting than, than Welcome Back slash We Come Back, which was fine, but I'm not going to carry on reading it. So, Clown Motel for the win. Clown Motel for the win. Yeah, I can't find that the book's actually out yet, but the stuff that he was yelling while he was in the Clown Motel was uh, amusing. It did was, he, it was along the lines of, help, help, I'm in the Clown Motel. I was going to say, did he go a bit funny? In the Clown Motel. A little, a little bit, but then he'd also, you know, there were Kickstarter rewards that were things like, We'll do a seance in in the graveyard next to the clown motel. If you can't make it, we'll do it on Skype. That sort of thing. He had the you know, old, he had stuff Skype to do. Seance. He had a little. He had stuff to do in the clown motel. <laughs> he wasn't alone in, in the, the clown, clown motel. motel. Never alone in the clown motel. No, there's all those clowns. <laughs> oh. I also read. Uh, Delilah Dirk and the King's Shilling Ooh. by Tony Cliff, which is the follow-up to the first Delilah Dirk book, funnily enough. Which I hear was a good time. It was a good time. If you like pacey adventure stories with um, catty adventuresses and uh, slightly baffled um, Turkish men who've been dragged along for the ride because they make excellent tea. I do like that thing. Um, the second one continues uh, in, in that vein with a slightly less magical flying boat stuff in this one um, they're sort of crossing crossing between France and Portugal um, with uh, 
uh, the the ever never never ending war between the English and the French going on around them, and eventually get arrested for treason for being behind enemy lines. But the person arresting them is is on the lookout for an English spy for very particular reasons, and it's all very bad. Um, and they end up in London doing adventures. Hurrah! Uh, and the whole thing continues to be a delight, frankly. Um, it's just really good fun. It's good-natured and and um, not light, not lightweight, but all ages in the best way. Hmm. Like it's fun if you're an adult. It's suitable for kids. It's a little bit Indiana Jonesy. Stylistically, what are we looking at here? Uh, cartoony, hyper, uh, sort of big landscapes, cartoony people of a sort of, I don't want to say manga-esque, but there is that same sort Mm. of, like, that, that, that sort of, um, forced perspective that you associate more with manga now than, say, Jack Kirby, but, um... Sort of that slightly... I'm picturing something in that sort of slightly tintiny way where it looks like it's been flattered and then turned up to 11. It's a lot more dynamic than something like Tintin. I mean, Tintin's a good... Um, Tintin's a good uh, sort of point to come at it from, given that there's a large cast, there's a mystery, mm. there's, a, um, there's a whole bunch of adventures and possibly a drunk. There's no dog, though. It sounds like my weekends. Mm. Oh. Delilah Dirk sounds great. It is. It's a lot of fun. It's, um... The first one's great, too. Um... I think, uh, he works in... Tony Cliff works in animation. Um... For his day job. Mm. And... You can definitely see that. These are very dynamic books. There's a lot of cross-fertilization at the moment. Graphic design, animation. Tons. Illustration. Yeah. Um, last time I was at TCAF, half the people I met were full-time, full-time in animation and mm. also producing comics. There's a lot of animation in Toronto, isn't there? Or is it just that we know people that know There's a lot in Toronto, but people were up from LA, they were from Vancouver, there's all over the place. But yeah, I mean, we, we know people who work in animation in mm. Toronto. Mm. Um, yes, there's a lot of it. So that's that. The other thing I read was, uh, Space Riders. That sounds like it's either being good or terrible. It's something trying to be both. Um, Say more. So, uh, Space Riders is... It's from a relatively new uh, label called Black Mask, which um, Steve Niles and a few other people set up. And it is the tale of the... uh, of an aggressively Mexican space captain... Capitan, who refused to be called Captain. Um, okay. Who has been betrayed and left for dead by his first mate, Hammerhead, who looks like a He-Man figure. Um, and is brought back into the fold of the organisation that uh, suspended him after he was stabbed in the eye by his first mate. Um, uh, where he's placed in command of his old ship, the uh, Santa Muerte, which is a giant flying metal skull. This sounds pretty great. Um, where he's teamed up with uh, a sexy robot uh, and a religious humanoid baboon who has the ass cut out of his spacesuit, so his enormous red buttocks show through. Okay. And they fight people. It has that insane, propulsive non logic of a Saturday morning cartoon. Right. Um, and the basic, the, the feeling of it is, it's like it's halfway between Saturday morning cartoon and a grindhouse film. Like the narrative logic is barely there in either case. I'm quite excited. They, they, the, the main characters look like action figures. They're fighting against other things that look like action figures. It's ultra violent. There's a hell of a lot of swearing. The entire thing looks like a 1980s trading card. It's like thick blacks. All of the colours are lurid and neon. Um, I'm picturing basically a less good, more sweary space dumplings. 
You wouldn't be a million miles away. There's even a space whale in it. <gasps> There's even a space I'm whale. I'm a sucker for a space whale. Yeah. It's got the kind of Kirby Cosmics thing going on. There's a huge amount of Kirby Cosmic stuff. There's a lot of Cosmic, like Kirby Crackle oh, going Oh, right. On. It does this. Yeah, it's sort okay. of... It's that sort of... Like... Rat Fink through skate, to skate early punk, 80s skate punk. Skate punk dropout art. Yeah. 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 A lot of, a lot of neon gradients and a lot of nonsense. Um, but just... Just incredible, incredible stupidity deliberate stupidity it's, it's the underside of the but, second most talented stoner skateboard that's yeah that, that, that there's a page here which has basically three lines of Vamanos so he wants a fight does he let's give him one all all around a giant metal floating skull you know if you want to read this from my description I thought it was great but I'm quite fond of lurid nonsense which this is and is very deliberately trying to be second most talented stoner skateboard. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. No, it. I want to read this thing, but right, just you know, this is where we're coming from here. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a way to to introduce this next bit that doesn't sound like a eulogy. Well, go ahead, eulogize. I mean, so Darwin Cook died unexpectedly this weekend. I mean, it was expected to his family, but they'd been completely private about his illness. Which um, is completely fair. Oh, entirely. I get really hacked off with media narratives about... It was very, very secret about... Yeah, like, we're, we're not entitled. We're not the yeah. people who matter. Um, but it was, a bit, it was a bit of a shock, mm. I think. And He was what? Uh, late 53. 60s? Whoa, I thought mid, mid to late 60s. No, Fuck. 53. Wow. So, I mean, he's, he's been one of my favourite artists for quite a long time. Um, I think since sort of reading Justice League, or sorry, DC, The New Frontier, as the, the books were called, not the cartoon, when it originally came out. Um, was that his first sort of big gig? Because he was yeah. an animator, I think, for a while? So he used to work in magazine design, which I think definitely comes across in oh, the Parker books. Yes. Especially, is it the second one, the yeah. outfit? Which kind of rotates through different visual idioms from, yeah. from magazines. Has a, has a huge heist set around a sort of lifestyle magazine and yeah, really, really works. It explains explains how money laundering works and using race courses, yeah, and then through, through a, a sort of lifestyle magazine. It's, it's crime done as gentlemen's magazines, it's yeah. brilliant. Um, but yeah, he, he was a. Um, yeah, magazine designer for a long time. Then wanted to get into um, comics. Um, got in via animation. Sort of worked for Bruce Tim, right? Um, in the the old school DC animation, where everything was sort of based on the Batman animated series style. Um, he worked on Batman Beyond, doing storyboards. Also came up with the title sequence for Batman Beyond. Mm. Um, so he he did a lot of stuff, and then he did uh, Catwoman with Ed Brubaker mm. which was sort of the first big one in the DC universe he also did Batman Ego and other tales he did When in Rome didn't he um, yeah he did When in Rome and Selena's Big Score yes that's the, the other um, which were which looked great I mean they, they look beautiful his work always looks beautiful but they were also um, really nice ways of um Tying up what then was still the relatively recent Frank Miller take on on her origins, which has been sort of cemented through things like um, Long Halloween as being the sort of concrete, um, the origins with her as a sort of dominatrix slash prostitute. Um, sort of found a way to take the edge off that because if there's one thing he's always done, it it's always been harking back to a slightly more innocent version of superhero comics but he, he and Ed Brubaker did count them as a, a pulpy adventure mm. a sort of pulp crime adventure um, which appears with, to be a large piece of his comfort zone yeah with a sort of a, a bit of hard noir at the edges um, mm. introduced the character that he used repeatedly uh, a guy called Stark who was because obviously yeah Stark the Parker books 
um, who was Selena's mentor in this. And then there's another short story he did in his run on Solo later where you see this character going up against Batman. Not well. Um, but yeah, he just, I mean, he, he took stuff like, he took the, the, the hard-edged Frank Miller stuff and just had a slightly different spin on it. So mm. Miller obviously brought noir into comics in his own way. This just felt better, less cynical. Yeah. More of the sort of um, maybe the 50s, 60s rather than the bleak start of the war Warner Brothers stuff from the 30s. Well, this is this is stuff you get from, again, from, from Parker, which I read recently, which is a, a sense of delight, I suppose, even given that... So the subject matter is pretty, pretty grim. It's fairly nasty. Parker's not a nice man. But... There's an open, kind of hazy, sunny afternoon feel to some of it. Not much, but some. And, and a kind of... Just a delightedness. But it, so when, it, when it's scrolling through the, 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 the magazine idiom or some of the stuff in... Um, big Score, is it the third one? It's, it's The, the Hunter, it's the, the Outfit. The, the Score. The Score. Um, and then, um, which trips along with this musical motif. And it, it's, it's playful. Yes, these are nasty crime books, but there's a play to it. Yeah. Um, there's I think also that partly some, comes from being fifties rather than thirties, as you say. Yeah. There's also some great stuff in that one where um, you get introduced to the gang, hmm. and they're all just people in comics that he admires. They're all based on. The, there's one guy who is very obviously Jim Steranko, hmm. um, like the elder, the dapper elder gentleman of the group. It's just it's just Jim Steranko the whole time. Um, they're all based on people that he knows. It's really. It's really nice. Like they are, they are playful. They're also mm. really clever adaptations of the books. Mm. They're not just I've not straight read the books. up. But the books are very, very hard nosed. But I mean, if you think about the beginning of the Hunter, which is mm. sort of twelve pages of almost completely wordless yeah. stuff, which really introduces Parker as a character, very intense, just brilliantly. Um, he sort of he he's walking through traffic. It sort of starts with him walking through traffic on our New York day and just furiously pissed off and sort of winds up with him going through go, going, going through getting getting money from in various ways meeting a woman stealing her cigarettes um, flirting well she flirts with him and he doesn't give a shit and then he basically just goes and runs his head onto the sink and stares at himself in the mirror for a while yeah. it's 12 pages of doing that very very slowly and you get one of those wonderful brilliant. eyes and intensity panels that he does so well yeah and his style just worked brilliantly for those things as well but, this... but evolved across the books so there's a colour scheme across them they all have a, a bunch of colour theming the first one is far more monochromatic but mm. it brings in sort of different kinds of colour and nuance and style and it loosens up one of the things I really, really love about the Parker books is the play between the kind of panelless, loose, hazy stuff, and then the strictured. Yeah. Mm. So this was interesting. So I reread New Frontier last night, mm. and I reread um, some of the Parker books in preparation for this. And it's interesting how his style is incredibly recognisable, um, even distinct from Bruce Timm's stuff, which is similar. Like. There's, there's a lot of similarity there, but they are distinct. Um, and both New Frontier and the Parker books are really formalist. They're derived from like really quite formalist storytelling ways, but New Frontier is really stuck in the Silver Age. Like it's it's a lot of six panel stuff or one one big splash mm. page. Um, and it's still clever and he still does interesting things but it does that it doesn't have anything as stark pardon the pun as the Parker stuff like particularly the third yeah. and fourth ones where you just have big hulking silhouettes that take up yeah. almost entire frames it doesn't have the the gutters fading away like the Parker books do yeah. and you just end up with sort of the colour bleeding out yeah. brief sorry brief aside on production God, the Parker books are a delight to handle. They are. The hardbacks are... Oh, the paper stock is delicious. The hardbacks are lovely, and the hardbacks look like hardbacks, and they've got nice little bits of embossed... They're worth every penny, they're just... Oh my God, they're so good. But the paperbacks um, have been completely redesigned, so they look like 
smart versions of spinner rack novels. Oh, which wonderful. is like they've not done the full on frayed edges photoshoppy thing. Yeah. But they have made them look more like spinner novels, like big thick bands at the top and bottom. Oh, I like that. Yeah, just Some, genuine, someone genuinely thoughtful production. It's, it's, it's IDW, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, fair, right. Like, yeah. They're a bit designy. They are, yeah. They're doing all of the um, Marvel books. They also have done the Martini edition of Parker, which mm-hmm. I think is the first two books. Um, have you any idea how hard it's been for me not to buy that? It's it's beautiful. I, yeah. I mean, I own them in hardback, so I'm not going to, but... It's basically, it's it's like a DC Absolute edition in size and format. It's it's an enormous oversized version of this. Oh. God, you must you must want it. There's also, there's an Absolute version of the New Frontier, and there's also a giant hardback all-in-one, not not sort of clamshell-bound one, which is I just really want to nice. cuddle that. So I was going through my collection last night, and I think I must have... Over a thousand pages of Darwin Cook stuff. Four Parker books. You've got the giant thing as well, haven't you? Yeah, Graphic Graphic Inc., um, which is the collection of his DC stuff. So lots of the short stories, lots of prints and covers. So I've read the Parker and I've leafed through Graphic Inc., but I've not actually read uh, New Frontier. New Frontier is one of my favourite things. So... Um, New Frontier is... The idea is it's the... End of the golden age of comics, so the early, early stuff, Superman, Batman, hmm. and the Justice League, uh, the Justice Society, with the original Green Lantern and so on, they, they're hmm. going away, um, leading into the beginning of the Silver Age with the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, the Barry Allen Flash, hmm. Martian Manhunter, and all of those, and it's tied into the publication dates of those comics, um, which also ties into the Korean War and the sort of switch from the Eisenhower administration moving into Kennedy. Um, And it is very much a Silver Age book. It is a hopeful, optimistic thing. It is rooted in graphic design of the time. Like his... his, um, Design borrows heavily from advertising, from magazine design of the time, um, from cutting. It's just really, really beautiful stuff. And um, so it tells us. It tells the story of a bunch of established characters like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, all the characters that were formed in the 30s and early 40s, slowly coming into contact with the ones from the 50s and so on. But it does so in a real world setting of post-World War II Mm. and it does so in the real world setting of mid-20th century America so it takes all of the sort of hopeful gee whiz optimism and it sets it against a background of massive civil inequality of a generation with PTSD Um, and the thing that he, the thing that it does really beautifully, because he wrote, he wrote as well as drew this, mm. is it plays off the sort of characters who are coming up in the fifties, who, are, who, didn't fight, who have, quite nice lives, and the people who were in World War Two, and sort of contrast them against one another. And it, it's got a little bit of the, the sort of greatest generation thing. There's a bit of the right stuff in there, like Chuck Yeager is a character in there. Mm. But what it acknowledges that a lot of that doesn't is that a lot of these people were really broken and that a lot of these people had to do really horrible things. Oh, yes. So Hal Jordan's kind of like one of the point of view characters in it. And he is... Um, he essentially signed up to fly jet planes because he loved his father. He was a jet fighter in World War Two, mm. And he wants to be a test pilot. He doesn't mm. really want to be a fighter, but the Korean War started. He had mm. to go over there. He essentially flew as a pacifist. Mm. And through circumstance, at the very end of the war, he has to kill someone. And a lot of it is sort of focused around how that affects him. Mm. Is he a good person? Is he a brave and courageous person? Yeah. And 
a lot of it plays out through that, but it, it just, it weaves a lot of things together. There, I mean, I, I talked to you the other day about this and described it as the Silver Age meets um, William Blake. Yeah. There is, there are a lot of sort of Blake references in it. There's you know a bad, to guy called the center, bad guy called the center, for fuck's sake. Mm. But also there are T-Rexes and things from space and Silver Age superheroes. It's just, it's a big, clever thing that ties together the actual origins of those comics with the world as it was at the time. Doesn't step back from showing things as being particularly unpleasant. What are the writing dates? The, it it, came so, out in 2004. Oh, I, was, I thought you were going to say 80s. No, 2004. I thought it would be a little bit closer to the material it talks about. It honestly feels like a reaction to the stuff in the 80s. Mm. It is, like, so it feels like a reaction to Watchmen and, and mm. to Frank Miller's stuff in that it takes Silver Age characters and it does them in a way that is hopeful and is true to the 1950s versions yeah. without being naive, okay. which I think is, an, is a really beautiful balancing act and is kind of an antidote to all of the dark laboured stuff that we have yeah, at the moment the, the really hefty kind of, like even the MCU which is making a better fist of it than a lot it's still, still, a, still bit, a bit, a bit hard into... but one of the things so at the end of every issue there is a dedication to five or six artists mm. and it's always people like um, uh, like Wally Wood who were sort of masters of the form, but also worked within the sort of strictures of, well, largely worked within the strictures of superhero comics. Mm. Um, and I just, I found that interesting because, so I was reading the original issues last night, because so much of the superhero comics now seem to purely worship Frank Miller. Mm. And just just reading this thing that was smarter than ninety nine percent of what's out there, and still a very very hopeful thing, I thought was more people should do this. Yes, yeah, yeah. It takes skill and talent and understanding, obviously, but it's not impossible. It's it's right there. Mm. How how much of it is though? There's, it's it's quite a hefty thing. Isn't Six it? large issues um, plus. Oh, I thought it was bigger than that. They're they're. They're big issues. Um, so they're sort of double size. Okay, cool. Um, and then there was a, another, a special that came out in 2008. And some very quick one-off stories in Solo, which was... A while ago, DC did a thing called Solo, which mm. was an artist writes and draws their own comics. And the Darwin Cook's one was brilliant just absolutely brilliant he took a load of characters from New Frontier in the same style and essentially they're all in this bar which is at the nexus of reality having a drink and it would sort of slowly spin off into other stories and a lot of it was sort of based around Slam Bradley a um, Slam, Slam Bradley is a uh, pre-Superman character that Siegel and Schuster worked on, and he's one of the major characters in in um, New Frontier. Uh, and Cook's version of him is a sort of schlubby detective. He's like he's he's lovable. He prefers to work for women um, because he's got this stupid protector complex. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's him sort of getting drunk at this bar and telling tall tales, and sort of spin off into other stuff based around New Frontier. That's kind of cool. Well, it's it is because it's just more than anyone outside of the sort of the DC animated stuff of the nineties. He's got his own vision. Like everyone has head canon of superhero stories that are, of how they how they fit together and how they work because the continuity is bullshit. Mm, Otherwise, you have to have it. But he sort of enforced his on the world, mm. which I really love. He has this this version of it, um, and I genuinely hope that it influences a lot more people going forward because it's just a a really 
you don't have to abandon the past to keep working with those characters. He never did. I mean, he took, he, he based a large amount of it around a really dumb character from 1937 who in his first appearance honestly just threw a load of really racist caricatures of Chinese people into one another. Right. But you can leave the bad and work with the good. So I was going to ask you, hopefully people would, would take this, this idea forward. I'm trying not to ask, did it sell? Um, I, guess, I guess the question I'm, I'm meandering around is, do we think, was Darwin Cook a sort of an artist's artist, a critic's writer? Was, was he, or was there, was there a big commercial impact? How direction setting was this? Not initially. People didn't really get it at first. Um, there was a great article came out about this at the weekend where um, someone who was writing it about the time and loved it and sort of got what was going on as it was coming out as individual issues, sort of recounting how it had affected her and um, how she'd sort of spoken to him mm. um, and how much he'd appreciated someone getting it. But no, people at the time didn't really seem to, and it's one of those things that people have reevaluated later, and it's sort of come back as one of those things that gradually sold. Mm. Um, so, no, unfortunately, it didn't. It didn't sort of. It didn't make a massive impact initially, but then five years later, it got made into an animated film, which is cut down fairly drastically, yeah. but. Still a reasonable mark of success, I think. You know, the rest of his work, I mean, he's very, very well thought of, of course, but uh, not, maybe not that often spoken of outside of the sort of critical or, I don't know. I don't know. Um, certainly, yeah, certainly critically well thought of. I mean, people absolutely love the Parker books because yeah. they are absolute triumphs of form so astonishingly good at doing what they do yeah I mean the first the first couple of beautiful the third one has so many genuinely remarkable panels in it that I think I've screenshotted about half the book on my iPad and just, yeah um, well the ones the ones we were looking at earlier the kind of uh, slightly lazily yellow shaded kind of figure yeah. in the door with the knife and that kind of light dark disconnect yeah I think anyone who has an interest in what comics can do while looking very much like comics. Mm. The Parker books are, are sort of yeah, it, it's not amazing for that. There's a real I, 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 I almost had lightness of touch, but it's so obviously not. It, it's it's no, it's it's a knowledge and practice practice and it's it's being fucking good at your job, just being astonishingly good at this thing you do, but. The art in particularly the later Parker stuff is ostensibly casual, you know. It's it's kind of it's as you say, definitely comics that you could see it being it wouldn't be out of place as an over like a highly worked example of a newspaper strip. And yet there's so much packed into it. Yeah. So the one the, the one that I really called out, which was from the score, which is the third volume, which is not probably my least favourite. But the artwork's astonishing, is just sort of Parker completely obscured, marching down this dark alley with his hat flying off into the background, yeah. and an obviously terrified person in front of him, completely white on the page, like no detail at all. Yeah. And in, in the caption drawn over the character saying, Parker had no weapons on him but his hands, they were big hands to go with the rest of him. Which is... Now he's got, to be fair, he's got Richard the, Stark to work with. That's from the, that's from the books. It is um, Richard, isn't it? It is, yeah. Uh, Pen name of Donald Westlake. Donald Westlake, yeah. Which is not a much worse name for a noir author. I'm, I was always surprised. I mean, mind you, Richard Stark, why wouldn't you? But, but it just it's just, it's black on white with a yellow wash on top, and it's just the most incredibly striking image. Mm. It's just, it's just incredible. He was an incredible artist. And I, I... I genuinely love large swathes of the Parker books. Yeah. 
Oh. I've actually only read the first three. There's what four? Or There's four. Five? Yeah, the fourth one is is nice. It's pared down. Um, it's probably a, a, a neater story than the third, but not as not as uh, outstanding in terms of the art. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's um, Slay Ground, which is um, oh, Parker, yes, yes, Parker yes. going to ground in an abandoned funfair. Um, what more do you want? Really? With the mafia closing in, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I saw him in Toronto a few years ago, um, giving a talk with Ed Brubaker, and they were talking about the um, the sort of the, the films that had influenced them in particular, and then did a, a screening of uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, um, mm. which is a fantastic heist gone wrong film one of the things that was really striking about that is that for all that sort of we've spoken about him writing with a lightness of touch and being quite an optimist through his writing is the man was a curmudgeon <laughs> the man absolutely was a curmudgeon and I, I find that reassuring as a, as a grumpy man myself that you, you can be uh, both an arsehole and and uh, Optim- and an optimist mm. Mm. Um, but it was interesting they were kind of like um, naughty children together two middle aged grey haired men um, <laughs> talking about films where a lot of people are murdered horribly um, but I really really enjoyed that um, they both knew a lot about the, 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 these movies and they obviously knew a lot about sort of crime novels and, and, and films and everything that they were drawing from which I think very obviously comes through in striking an authentic tone um, when, when writing those things I can, yeah. I can feel you getting quite sentimental I'm about quite all sentimental. this it's, uh, it's I touching may have uh, shed a little tear reading New Frontier last night Wow, you had you had a human feel. To be honest, I'm ninety percent sure I've done that before. Anyway, it's the same with the Iron Giant. There's mm. just there's, there's there's something about Silver Age optimism that gets to me. No, well, it's it's good optimism. If you're going to have to have optimism, let's let's do that. Hopefully, we've um, given a good account of why. Darwin Cook was one of the greatest people who's ever worked in comics. Um, if I could, if I could quickly trouble you further, Mister Conroy, mm. um, for for our, our our listeners who might be a little less familiar with with Darwin Cook, if if any of them are, a couple of quick entry points. Things. I mean, it sounds like New Frontier. New Frontier. But that's. I mean, that's quite a commitment, but it sounds great. It's it's six issues. I read it last night. Are we? I mean, are we just saying basically New Frontier and Parker, or is there is, is there anywhere sort of less well known that you point people to have a look? Um, there's Batman Ego, um, which is Batman facing the long dark night of the soul, or Bruce Wayne potentially mm. facing the long dark night of the soul, um, and that's available in a collection called Ego and Other Tales. Um, there's his work in Solo. It's better to have read that after. Um, mm. After New mm. Frontier, but still, absolutely great. Catwoman, of course, um, with Ed Brubaker um, for delightful noir nonsense. There's a collection that has uh, Wayne Rome and Selena's big score. Mm. Yeah, it's a hardback, isn't it? It's. Uh, I think it's a little pulpy paperback that then continues into Ed Brubaker's other stuff because oh, he I carried think, on writing it for else. quite a while I'm probably thinking of the very very nicely produced when in Rome hardback which is quite slim but uh... but it, Cat, Cat, um, Ed Brubaker Catwoman Volume 1 starts with a lot of Darwin Cook stuff um, and then there's the four Parker books that are available on IDW um, and Graphic Inc which is the collection of all of his other stuff at um at DC, there's That's like it's about got, eight kilos. Yeah, it's a big book. It's got his issue of Solo in there. Um, it's got some Jonah Hex that he wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, he gives good cowboy. I can imagine that. Um, it's got a collection of the covers that he did for um, um, for DC last year, um, which again were glorious Silver Age mm-hmm. um, style stuff. 
I think my absolute favourite is Batman and Superman collapsed laughing over a bomb that's just been diffused with a second on the timer. Um, that's a really nice one. Um, and there's Twilight Children, which is just coming out now. Right. Which um, was, as far as I know, the last thing he worked on. But that was... Um, one of the Hernandez brothers, and I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was James Hernandez uh, and him, and it's a small village in South America where strange things are happening. Um, FBI, kooky FBI agents, Twin Peaks style, are turning up, hmm. um, and something's going on at the lighthouse. Or there. <laughs> Um, Something's always going on at the lighthouse. But uh, that's out fairly soon on Vertigo. So I read the first issue. I really enjoyed it. It had a very Twilight zone feeling to it. Um, and I'm looking forward to reading the rest of that. Although, again, it'll probably do things to the feelings and I'm not okay with people knowing about that. It's okay. You'll, you'll have some feels and we won't tell anyone. Okay, good. It's between you and me and the future radio. And, and whoever decides to listen to this yeah so that's that's Darwin Cook those are the things or you could just w- watch the opening sequence to Batman Beyond or Batman of the Future as it's known in the UK because apparently we can't cope with fairly straightforward usage of the English language and needed it explained um, are you sure? because I'm fairly sure I watched it as Batman Beyond did you pirate it? no I, like, I, I think I remember it Okay. No, it was Batman of the Future over here, and it was Batman Beyond in the US. Hmm. Weird. There you go. Well, it's, uh... Darwin Cook. Yeah. Bollocks. Frankly. Yeah, it's a, it's a shit thing. It's, it's really quite shit. Really shit. Yeah. We don't really have anything perky to leave our listeners with Dewey this evening go out and and buy his stuff to support his wife frankly yeah it's great give him him some money yeah I would heartily recommend anything he's ever done really not not in a cynical give his wife money way in a it's great it's all great I mean that that is just a thing you said but I've not read anything of his that I haven't enjoyed not like just, just not once yeah. And partly that's his aesthetic gels with... Yeah, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. ...what I enjoy. But he's also been a very, very thoughtful writer and artist the whole time, and, and uh, he will be sorely missed. This is true. Let's try and end without, you know, sliding off into a dick joke. But that's, that's just... Uh... Good evening in a non-dick joke manner. Good night. You can't the electric nut sack. I assume you don't want me to just put it in your hand.